In the previous episode, we examined the establishment of the Tudor dynasty and finished by looking at Henry VIII's fascination with war and how it might enhance his reputation amongst the great powers of Europe. Henry was, from early in his reign, eager to make a name for himself on the broader European stage. This was in part achieved through the Battle of the Spurs in 1513 and would be expanded upon over the coming years. 1521, Henry had his trusted advisor, Mr. Fixit, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, organize an epic event designed to bring England and France closer together and, of course, showcase the power and authority of the king. It became known as the Field of the Cloth of Gold. The name itself gives a good indication of what unfolded. Cardinal Wolsey, drawing upon his ample organizational skills, transported England's ruling elite, about 5,000 in total, to France for a week of festivities. The event was captured in a painting that resides at Hampton Court Palace. In it, we see the young Henry parading onto the field to meet the young Francis I of France. In preparation of the event, a vast area was leveled. A valley was even filled in, so neither of the rulers would be elevated above the other. In the foreground of the painting sits a great castle, constructed out of wood and canvas just for this event, and fountains that ran with red and white wine. To the right is a tilting yard where daily jousts took place. In the center sits a grand tent, and in it we see Henry and Francis wrestling, not with weighty diplomatic issues, but each other. It's recorded that at one point the more nimble Francis threw Henry to the ground, surely to his great surprise. They tried on the latest fashions, they feasted, they discussed a variety of subjects, and in the end it appeared to have been a great success. All went smoothly, and Henry achieved what he craved the most, greater recognition on the European stage. Yet this came at a price. The event, like subsequent conflicts Henry would be involved in, came at great expense, placing an increased strain on the royal treasury, and undoing much of what his father, Henry VII, had achieved. Despite the goodwill shown at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, tensions continued and worsened with Henry's split with the Church of Rome in 1534. Tensions also continued between England and Scotland. With the death of James IV at Flodden in 1513, James V came to the throne uh, at the tender age of one. This and the fact that his mother Margaret was Henry VIII's sister meant that there would be years of English influence at the Scottish court and that Henry would exploit the situation as much as possible. He continued to encourage an English, English presence in Scotland and ultimately hoped to establish English dominance. The result was continued struggles between various factions in Scotland and occasionally between the Scots and English. In 1522, the Scots threatened an invasion of Northern England, but the Scots nobles really didn't have the heart for it as they had the disaster of Flodden in the backs of their minds. In 1523, Henry offered his daughter Mary as bride to James V, and when he refused, preferring a French match, Henry responded by sending an English army north, invading southern Scotland and burning the towns of Kelso and Jedburgh. In 1541, tensions were again mounting, and now religion was also thrown into the mix, as Henry was encouraging the spread of the Protestant faith. In 1542, the Duke of Norfolk led an English army into Scotland and burned, looted, and spoiled much of the borders. Henry once again claimed overlordship of Scotland. In late November of the same year, the Scots and English met again at the Battle of Solway Moss. 3,000 English defeated a Scottish force of 18,000. 
There were two further invasions in 1544 and 45. 1544, Henry sent 114 ships and 8,000 men against the Scottish capital. Henry's pleasure, the leader was told, was that you shall put to fire in the sword all the communities along the shores of the Fourth Estuary and burn Edinburgh. The force landed at the port of Leith and three days later, on May 7th, burnt Edinburgh. Edinburgh Castle, perched high atop its volcanic rock, survived, but the palace and abbey of Holyrood and much of the town were destroyed. In 1545, Henry launched a preemptive strike against the Scots, burning the town of Melrose. On this occasion, however, the English were ambushed near Jedburgh and heavily defeated. This conflict revolved around Henry's desire to marry his son Edward to Mary, Queen of Scots, uniting the two countries by marriage and extending his influence north. The Scots called these wars the Rough Wooing. Instead of bringing the two countries together, the Rough Wooing increased anti-English sentiment in Scotland. With the death of Henry VIII in 1547, England saw less of war with its European neighbours. However, the uncertain religious situation, one of the legacies of Henry VIII, left the country in a very difficult situation which would lead to great uncertainty and internal conflict. It took six wives, a break with the papacy, and the destruction of more than a few careers. But in the end, Henry VIII did get what he wanted, an heir. This did not, however, guarantee that all would be well. Although the initial transition from Henry to Edward went smoothly enough, the next decade, from 1548 to 1558, proved to be one of the most difficult for the Tudor dynasty, and one that at times threatened to tear the Kingdom of England apart. In Henry's will, the king named a council to watch over the young Edward, but in a very short time, Edward's uncle, Edward Seymour, Lord Somerset, worked his way into prominence, and often through some rather dubious means. He became protector of the realm and governor of the king's person, so he had enormous power. And through this role, he attempted to introduce all sorts of new legislation. And, we have to say, a less repressive atmosphere at court. He relaxed some of the more repressive measures put in place by Henry VIII. He repealed the treason laws. He swept away all repressive religious legislation, including a 1414 Act for the Burning of Heretics. The more lenient atmosphere is demonstrated by the fact that only two people were executed for heresy during Edward's reign. Joan Bocher in 1550 for denying Jesus was Mary's son, and George Van Paris for denying that Jesus was God. Somerset appears to have been a great supporter of the poor and did his best to address some of the hardships caused by enclosure. Enclosure being the process where the landed class were enclosing common land, which traditionally the poor and uh, the, the uh, people working the land had access to, free access. He aimed to reduce poverty, but at times his ideas were misguided. In one act of 1547, he sought to impose slavery on anyone refusing to work. But there was an increased emphasis on social justice. We see agitation for hospitals and workhouses for the London poor. We see attacks against enclosure. And basically, efforts to maintain a well-ordered society, something which increasingly was brought under pressure. There were, of course, other serious problems that had to be addressed. There were continued tensions with Scotland. There were religious tensions, Catholics coming under considerable pressure. 
Archbishop Cranmer contacted Swiss reformers and welcomed distinguished German refugees who had been displaced by the wars of Charles V. Many of these took up prominent positions in England. Martin Boker from Strasbourg took up a, a professorship at Cambridge. Peter Martyr, an Italian Protestant, held a chair at Oxford. John Alasco, a Polish Protestant, was superintendent of the Refugee Church in London. And John Knox, who had been run out of Scotland and forced to spend time as a galley slave on a French ship, also found security in England. Edward continued on from where his father had left off. Henry had been satisfied with a balance or compromise between Catholicism and Protestantism. But Edward took steps a matter further. Edward took matters a step further, working to rid the kingdom of the remaining vestiges of Catholicism. In 1547, he ordered weekly sermons and the removal of images. In 1548, some services were done in English instead of Latin. And in 1549, the most popular, in 1549, the most popular act of Parliament was passed, which allowed priests to marry. And about a third of them ran out and did so as fast as they could. In 1549, he passed the Act of Uniformity. This ordered the use of a new Book of Common Prayer. The book has been viewed as a great achievement, embodying the concept of active congregational participation encouraging a dialogue between priest and people. The result of all this change was great tension, fear, hardship, and even rebellion. There was widespread rioting in 1548, and in 1549 it reached crisis proportions. The day after the statutory introduction of the new prayer book, villagers in Devon forced their priests to say Mass in the old style. This sparked off a dramatic rising. The Devon rebels were soon joined by people from Cornwall, they laid siege to Exeter. Fears of the violence spreading led to a general pardon being issued if the rebels would disband, but they refused. Instead, they drew up a lengthy manifesto demanding a return to the religion of the last days of Henry VIII. They wanted repressed ceremonies restored. They didn't like the New English Bible and wanted it suppressed. And they asked that some monasteries be reestablished, those that had been lost during the dissolution of the 1530s. The siege lasted for two full months, and while this Western Rebellion was going on, a more dangerous one broke out in Norfolk, Ketz Rebellion. And like others of its time, this would have a devastating impact, disrupted um, much of society, uh, farming, uh, many people were killed um, in Ketz Rebellion, uh, with a total of 16,000 strong uh, marching on Norfolk in the end. All of this unrest resulted in the overthrow of the protector Somerset by his counselors on the Privy Council, as his efforts to pacify the rebels through conciliation was bitterly resented by local landowners. Somerset had been working to protect the rights of the poor and provide a system whereby the worst abuses through enclosure would be halted. This was seen as encouraging the rebels, as they believed Somerset and the government were sympathetic to their cause. But in reality, enclosure was just one part of the problem. There are really three key elements. Enclosure, bad government at the local level, and grievances that relate to the clergy and religion. With the rebellion brought to a close and Somerset locked away in the tower, Edward's kingdom moved down a more radical path. The council was now controlled by the Earl of Warwick, later Northumberland, 
and he chose to cast moderation aside and move more rapidly towards religious innovation or Protestantism. A second prayer book was issued, and it was much more Protestant than the first. Basically, the compromise of the 1549 book between Protestant doctrine and Catholic form was broken. And then in 1553, Edward took ill. And then on, the question of the succession became an issue. Edward opposed his half-sister Mary coming to the throne because she was a staunch Catholic. And he instead looked towards Lady Jane Grey, who had married Northumberland's son, Guildford Dudley. Edward died on 6 July 1553, and four days later, Lady Jane Grey was proclaimed queen. Mary had herself proclaimed queen and began raising troops. There seemed to be more sympathy for Mary, many deciding to simply wait and see what happened. Now, at first, Mary seemed a very logical choice. Anti-Catholicism was widespread, but it was more a recognition that reform was needed than an outright adherence to Protestantism. Many may well have thought that in Mary they would see a return to the days of Henry VIII, the days of compromise, not full-fledged papal Catholicism. As well, Protestantism seemed to be in great retreat all across Europe. Charles V had won a great victory against the Germans in 1547, and forced conversions had been carried out in many of the German cities. However, a new wave of Protestantism soon began anew, causing civil war in France and the Netherlands, topping the government in Scotland. This meant that the direction England would take was just that much more important to both sides across Europe. Mary gained the throne, her opponents locked away or executed, but all was not well. From 1554, Mary had began to change, and to many, lost her initial appeal. What we see is the religious pendulum once again swinging, and this time swinging far towards Catholicism. Mass restored in parish churches, and there was enthusiasm for this, and there were also riots over this. Parliament reversed all the Edwardian ecclesiastical legislation, and the church was restored to the place it held under Henry VIII. But with this, there was another problem, and this couldn't be separated from the religious changes. This was Mary's marriage. Parliament wanted her to choose an Englishman. Instead, she settled upon the son of her cousin, Charles V, Philip of Spain. A marriage treaty was concluded in January 1554. Now, this Spanish marriage had its strengths. Any child born would inherit England and the Netherlands, if Philip's existing son, Don Carlos, was to die childless. This meant Mary's child would inherit the whole Spanish Empire, which, of course, by this time included a great deal of land in Europe and also some of the Americas. Philip would be given the title King of England, but he'd have his political role in running the country severely limited. But there was also great problems. The Spanish were greatly hated. Philip's visit to England went very poorly and upset many. In fact, at court there were often knives drawn, and so this was a very serious situation. November 1554, Parliament then was then called to unite England with Rome. After assurances that those holding confiscated church property would be protected, Parliament repealed the anti-papal legislation of Henry VIII. It also reenacted the laws of heresy. The result was a great deal of unrest, and perhaps the most serious challenge came in what is known as Wyatt's Rebellion. 
Wyatt's rebellion centered around a conspiracy hatched by a group of well-to-do landowners, dismissed officials, and soldiers. Their common purpose was opposition to the marriage of Queen Mary to Philip of Spain. But their strategy was unclear. One of them, William Thomas, proposed assassinating Mary herself, but the others wouldn't go this far. They decided upon four simultaneous risings in the spring of 1554, in the Welsh Marches, Devonshire, the Midlands, and Kent. They'd received word that they could expect French support. Unfortunately, their plan leaked out in January, and they were forced into action. Only in Kent was there serious uh, conflict. On 25th January, Sir Thomas White issued a proclamation at Maidstone insisting that he and his followers intended no harm to the Queen. They just wanted better counsel and counsellors. He then moved on to Rochester, where 30 Kentish gentry joined him, along with 3,000 followers. In order to divide time on January 31st, Mary offered to discuss the grievances over her proposed marriage and pardon all if they would disband and go home. Wyatt refused the offer. Instead, he put forward his demands that the tower be handed over to him and Mary be given as a hostage. Wyatt then marched on London, but finding London Bridge blocked, he headed up river to cross the Thames at Kingston. The next day he was allowed through Charing Cross and up Fleet Street, but was again denied entry into the city. After a few skirmishes, he turned back towards Charing Cross and gave himself up in order to avoid further bloodshed. In the end, the rebellion collapsed without accomplishing very much. There had been great debate over Wyatt's true intentions. He himself declared that his sole purpose in rising up was Mary's marriage to Philip of Spain. The government, wanting to tarnish the rebels, claimed that they want to restore heresy or Protestantism and were attacking the Catholic faith. Wyatt's claim here is the most believable. Hatred of the Spanish and all foreigners, for that matter, was intensifying at this time. At the upper levels, there was great fear that the marriage would lead to all the important government positions being filled with foreigners. There was also a great, very real fear that the marriage would lead to England becoming little more than a Habsburg dependency, a province of Spain. And finally, there were very real fears that closer ties to the papacy would continue. With these fears in mind, it is no surprise that the rising was best supported from Kent, one of the most Protestant counties in England. But in the end, it accomplished very little. Wyatt and some of the other leaders were kept alive for a time in order to try and get them to implicate Elizabeth in the Rising. Some wanted her executed so that there wouldn't be a Protestant heir to the throne. Others saw this being far too dangerous. In the end, the leaders were executed. Others escaped abroad. Of the rank and file, 480 were convicted, but nearly 400 were pardoned. So only about 90 people were executed. Two conspirators who had not rebelled were brought to trial. Sir Nicholas Throckmorton was acquitted by a London jury. The government later sent the jury to the Tower. The other was Sir James Croft. He was found guilty, but only after the Crown had packed the jury. Mary herself argued that a strong hand had to be taken towards the rebels. But overall, the government reacted rather leniently. Mary, however, determined to persecute all those against her, and more importantly, against her faith. There was fierce persecution of heretics, with about 280 people being burnt. Many fled to the continent. And all this at a time of economic crisis, of poor harvest, and epidemic. And simmering behind the scenes of all of this was the same old question which seemed to plague the Tudors. 
the succession? Could Mary produce an heir? And if not, who would then succeed? Well, Philip was out of the question because he was Spanish. Mary, Queen of Scots, was unlikely as she was married to the heir of the French throne, and this was unacceptable to Philip of Spain. That left one person that they could choose, Mary's half-sister, Elizabeth.
Anyways, Henry turned his back on the sound ideas and good policies of his father, his emphasis on restraint and direct involvement in ministering the kingdom. This would have a negative effect on the kingdom and threaten to undo much of what Henry VII had achieved. Yet Henry VIII's actions also brought England from periphery to center stage. He began the long road towards making England a major player in Europe, and as we will see, left few in England questioning the strength and legitimacy of the Tudor dynasty.